Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. These last seven months have taken us down a bumpy road. When we began our investigation into Catalina Palomino's murder back in February, I had no idea that we would face the difficulties that we have during this season. Key players in the case have declined to speak or share their stories. Pam Wiley, Keith Truesdale, and Eva Mondragon have all ignored requests for interviews. On top of that, and something that I never saw coming at the beginning, is the fact that Jennifer herself has never been allowed to make her own appeal for her innocence. We've never heard her version of what actually happened on the morning that Catalina was killed. The investigation has been a struggle, to say the least. However, even with the challenges that we've faced, I still believe that our thorough attention to every detail and every word of every statement has, in fact, provided us with a much clearer picture of the case. In last week's episode, I presented to you the prosecution's closing arguments. Those last few moments of the trial, when Dee Glazer wrapped her case up into a nice little bow for the jury. Today, I'm going to close out this season by presenting to you my closing arguments. I'm going to explain my current theory of the case, and more importantly, I'll be explaining the reasoning behind my theory. This is Season 10, Episode 29, In Theory. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before I begin, I want to make something very clear. What I'm about to present to you is my opinion and what I personally believe happened on the morning of October 29th, 1996. As we move along today and I share my theory, it's important for all of you to understand that what I'm presenting is not in any way a proven fact. I'm not accusing anyone in this case, nor do I claim to know what happened. I've spent over eight months analyzing the evidence and speaking with the people connected to the case, and I've drawn my own conclusions from that work. You have also been analyzing the case facts and evidence since February, and surely you have drawn your own conclusions. 
Who's right and who's wrong will likely only be determined through the forensic testing that I hope is conducted sooner than later. With that being said, let's get started. I developed my theory using the scientific method. I gather and analyze evidence, use that evidence to form a hypothesis, then I circle back to the evidence and continue to dig deeper and deeper, searching for anything that conflicts with the hypothesis. If a conflict is found, I start over from the beginning. And that's happened many times to me throughout this season. A hypothesis isn't moved into the category of a theory until it cannot be disputed with known factors. It has to fit every element before I'm comfortable to move forward. And again, I want to stress the fact that just because a theory can't be disproven by the evidence does not necessarily mean that it's true. It only means that it's a viable theory. Here's an example. Let's say that I'm in my office with Mike and I go into the house for a few minutes. When I return, I find Mike sitting at his desk and the back door of the office wide open. I ask Mike why the door is open and he says that he doesn't know and that he didn't open it. Based on that small amount of evidence, I would hypothesize that Mike opened the door and either forgot or he's lying to me. I then circle back to the evidence. I know that Mike was the only person in the office when I left. I know that the door was closed when I left. And I know that it was open when I got back. Nothing disputes my hypothesis. So I dig a little deeper and further question Mike. I ask him, did anyone else come into the office? He says, no, it was only him there. I ask him if he has any other explanation as to why the door is open, and he says he doesn't. At that point, I'd be comfortable with the theory that Mike opened the door and is either lying or he actually forgot that he had opened it. That is a theory that cannot be disproven by any of the known evidence, and it's also a reasonable scenario based on what we know. The theory checks all the boxes. But is it accurate? Is that what actually happened? Well, maybe not. There could have been unknown factors that change everything. For example, Mike could have stepped into the bathroom for a minute, and while he was in there, one of my German shepherds could have opened the door, which they've been known to do, came in looking for me, and went back outside unbeknownst to Mike. And so I know that's kind of a silly example, but I'm just trying to demonstrate a point. I came up with a solid working theory that was 100% supported by the evidence and could not be disproven by any known factors, and it could still be wrong. At the same time, it's not at all reasonable for someone to be angry with me for coming up with that theory or assume that it was wrong. Just because someone can imagine a series of events that could disprove the theory if they actually happened, for example, in Catalina's case, someone might say, but the wallet could have been found in Catalina's apartment and not Eva's, and therefore your theory is invalid. While there is an extremely remote possibility that that's true, it is by no means a known factor. I told you all of that to tell you this. My theory could very well be wrong. And if you disagree with me, then your theory might be right. Or we could both be wrong. But what I'm about to present is my opinion, supported by known factors. First things first. Do I believe that the state's theory is accurate? The answer to that is quite simple. Absolutely not. The state's case against Jennifer was built on four legs. Number one, her confession. Number two, her fingerprints on the outside of the patio door. Number three, Eva's testimony, 
She told the jury that Jennifer told her to lie, that she had bruises on her arms, and that Eva saw her stuffing something into her pocket. And then number four, the wallet. First, I'll address the most complicated part, the confession. Right off the bat, I can tell you that we have a few elements of the confession that carry through to all of her statements, and a few that are provably false. The consistent elements are the page from Craig, the trip to Janet's, the call to Craig, the walk back to the apartment, and something that I had previously missed is the fact that in every version, she notices something happening as she turns the corner at Eva's building. In her first few versions, she sees Eva yelling into the apartment. In the next version, she sees Eva and Frank coming out of Catalina's apartment and jumping the fence. And in the confession, she comes across Tim and Ernest as she turns the corner. All different scenarios, but consistently, something happened when Jen turned that corner. Moving on, we have the encounter with Red Rock and the fact that in every version, at some point, she jumps the fence. I'm going to consider these elements of Jen's statements as likely true. Again, because they are consistent through every version. Typically, elements like this aren't kept straight through multiple tellings of a story if they're not true. Especially, not this consistently. For an example, just look at every time Eva tries to retell her story. So I think that it's likely true that Jen was awakened to a page from Craig. She cleaned herself up and headed over to Janet's to call him. She made her calls and then walked back towards Eva's apartment. And as she turned the corner, something happened. From there, we have a black hole for a few minutes. Everyone's stories conflict here, and Jennifer changes hers multiple times. At some point, Jen did knock on Catalina's door, and as she's doing so, she has an encounter with Red Rock, that much I believe. At some point, Eva returns to the scene with Pam, and at some point, either before or after Eva returns, Jen jumped the fence and left her fingerprint on the outside of the patio door. These are elements that will work into a theory later, because as I said, in my opinion, these elements of the story are likely to be true. And you'll also notice that those elements can be true whether Jen's guilty or innocent. The trick here is to determine if the state got that black hole element of her confession correct, those few moments after Jen turned the corner. Right off the bat, there's a general nonsensical nature of Jen's confession story, which, of course, is subjective. But in my opinion, the overall story is just a fantasy. Just look at the planning. So these two guys select Catalina's car to steal. They develop a plan, at night, to steal it, at night. Why didn't they steal it that night? The story indicates a level of maturity and patience amongst these thieves. There's certainly no impulsivity, or they would have just taken it right then. So Jen's describing these guys as planners, calculated and mature. But then they don't show up the next night, and then decide to carry out the plan in broad daylight, which would indicate severe impulsivity, which is the opposite of what she described from these guys two nights before. And then there's the fact that given the blitz attack nature of the crime and the fact that the offenders would have had a clear view of the open patio door from the place where they supposedly met up with Jen, there was no need for them to have Jen knock on Catalina's door. In fact, her presence did nothing to help the situation and would only have made it more likely for them to get caught. And then look at the little details in the confession, the conversations. The confession says Tim and Ernest asked Jen if the old lady was home. 
That may seem like a minor detail that doesn't matter. But they asked her that while they were standing in clear view of the car that they supposedly already knew belonged to her. And again, they could see that her door was open. And then, when they're inside, Tim asked Jen to open the knife drawer for him that he's standing right next to. And furthermore, Jen's role was supposedly to be a lookout, and yet she says that Tim actually helped her jump over the fence into the patio, putting her in the worst possible position to be a lookout. Well, there is one worse position, and that's inside the apartment, which is where she says she went, and did they tell her to get back out and look out? No, they sent her around looking for things inside the apartment. None of that makes a lick of sense. Then add to that the fact that the evidence shows us a brutal blitz attack complete with overkill and a big fuck you at the end with the throwing of the big orange pot full of dirt onto poor Catalina's body. There's no evidence that there was ever any attempt to restrain her or tie her up. Whoever killed her went straight at her and beat her and stabbed her to death without hesitation. Nothing went wrong here. All of the evidence indicates that the attack on Catalina went exactly as planned. And if that was the plan, then why didn't they take the car? As our expert Jim Clementi said, if these offenders were willing to take such a massive risk and to commit to murdering a woman in cold blood all so that they could steal a car, they would have taken the car. Remember, when they exited the apartment, they were in the clear. No one saw them come out. No one knew what they had done. All they had to do was get in the car and drive away. Now, my opinion is based on my own analysis, and it's backed up by Jim's expert opinion. This was not a robbery gone wrong. This was a personal cause homicide, which completely undermines the entire theme of Jennifer's confession. There are other elements of the confession that are provably false. For example, Jen very specifically states that Tim grabbed a large butcher knife and handed it to Ernest, who then stabbed Catalina with it. But the medical evidence is very clear that the knife used to stab Catalina was no wider than seven-eighths of an inch. Most definitely not a large knife at all, and definitely not a large butcher knife. And not only is this element incorrect, but we know the source of the mistake. Detective Allen, in his own words, says that he believed the murder weapon was a large butcher knife at this point in time because of the large gashes on Catalina's chest. In his own testimony and in the closing arguments, the state admits that Jennifer's story was put together based on suggestions from Allen. And they used that to try to demonstrate guilt, but we all know better than that. If the story is changing based on the detective's suggestions, then it's not a true confession. And we can add to this with the fact that Alan leads Jennifer all the way to the purse, into the purse, even suggesting that there was a checkbook inside, and there's never a single mention of the wallet. Also, Jen can't tell Alan what the ceramic object was that was broken over Catalina's head, even though she supposedly saw it happen. But she doesn't know what that ceramic used to be, and neither did Alan. She doesn't know if it was a flower pot or a statue. And in her first statement, she describes it as orange. Evidence that she saw it after the murder when it was covered in blood, not before. And that changing color is another indicator of Alan driving the narrative. We also know from his own testimony that Jennifer was highly suggestible. 
Once she committed to telling him whatever he wanted to hear, Alan becomes the author of the fantasy that was presented as the confession. To sum this segment up, I believe that there are elements of truth in the confession, as I listed a few minutes ago. However, once Jennifer turns that corner, the story is completely made up. I don't believe a word of it. I think that it's pretty clear that we know where that story came from, and I do not believe that Jennifer was ever inside of that apartment before or during the murder. With that being said, that does not prove that she had no culpability. It's only evidence that she wasn't inside the apartment until after the murder was over. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Moving on to the other three elements of the state's case, these are pretty easy to break down. The fingerprint. Jen consistently says that she jumped the fence at some point in every version of her story. I think it's most likely that she jumped the fence at some point after the murder. Then we have Eva's testimony implicating Jennifer. In a nutshell, she's lying. She says Jen had bruises on her arms that we know weren't there. She adds in the story about seeing Jen stuff something into her pants after never mentioning it to the police. And we know that one, Eva didn't hang around downstairs when she returned with Pam to see that happen. Two, Youngster was definitely not outside at that point. And three, Eva says that Jen was hysterical when all other witnesses say that she was actually very calm at that moment. It just didn't happen. And then lastly, we have the wallet. The state says that it had to have been Jen who stashed the wallet behind Eva's fridge. But after our very deep analysis into the situation, I stand by my conclusion that the only one with the opportunity, actually two opportunities to stash the wallet, was Eva. To sum all of this up, plain and simple, the state got this case wrong. That's not to say that Jennifer has no culpability, but I am confident in saying that this murder did not happen in the way that Glazer presented it at trial. There's also no evidence to support the idea that Jennifer actually killed Catalina. And knowing that, it's now time to move on to my theory of the case. The elements of Jennifer's statements that I determined to be likely true in the previous segment will be the basis for my theory moving forward. That means that I'm starting the day with Jen getting the page from Craig, going to Janet's, calling him in the phone company, and walking back to Eva's. 
Personally, I don't think that Jennifer knew that anything bad was about to happen at that point. However, I strongly believe that when Jen turned the corner towards Eva's apartment, something significant happened in that moment. That is the point where her story derails in every version. The point where a logical and linear narrative goes haywire. Now, I'll tell you up front that I fully believe that people with strong feelings about this case on either side of the argument probably not going to be thrilled with my theory here. But as they say, I just report the news. I don't make it. What I have to work with right now is what's in the record and my analysis of those facts. What I'm missing is a statement from Jen. There are elements to this case and this theory that she may be able to explain. But without her being able to explain them, I'm left with the facts at hand. My theory begins with all four of our main characters asleep in Eva's apartment. The night before, while everyone was still awake, Eva was venting to the group about the complaints from Catalina. This is supported by the fact that Jen, Katie, and Youngster all demonstrated knowledge of the complaints and the fact that Eva was worried about being evicted because of it in their statements. After that, the boys take off. In everyone's statement, at some point that night, Katie and Youngster left for a while, and it was just Eva and Jen in the apartment. I believe that it was during this time when Eva shared her plan with Jennifer. Probably not in detail, and I don't think Jen really took her seriously. I think she likely would have assumed that Eva was just talking shit when she said that she and a guy named Frank were going to rough Catalina up. The first thing that I want to say before I move any further is that Frank is not Eva's boyfriend. I personally don't think that Eva's boyfriend had anything to do with any of this and quite possibly is still completely unaware of any potential involvement that Eva may have had in this murder. And while we're on the subject, just in case you didn't hear it in the follow-up or see all of the social media announcements, I want to make sure that I correct this here as well in a main episode. In last week's episode, when I gave you the criminal record for Eva's boyfriend, that was not actually his criminal record. That was the record for someone else. My databases had mixed up who I was talking about, people with the same name, similar birthdays. It's a long story. You can hear about it in the follow-up. But I do want to make clear to correct this here in a main episode that the criminal record I gave you last week was not actually Eva's boyfriend's criminal record. His record is actually pretty clean. Now, getting back to what I was saying, the fact that I don't believe Eva's boyfriend was involved and I know that Eva's boyfriend was not named Frank, I don't think that that invalidates what Cena Sullivan told me. I don't think that the fact that, as she put it, everyone in the complex knew that it was the older girl and her boyfriend has to mean that Eva's actual boyfriend had to be the subject of the rumor. It could have just as easily been Eva and a guy friend that they were talking about. I mean, no one really knew Eva in the complex. Even Red Rock didn't know her name. So I highly doubt any of these teenagers that were talking about what they heard happened would have known a whole lot about Eva's personal life. Now, one final reminder, I promise. I'm going to be stating the rest of my theory as though it's what actually happened. But please remember that this is just my personal theory. So here we go. Eva vents to the whole group about the complaint the night before. She's pissed. Katie and Youngster leave, and Eva then tells Jen that she and Frank are going to rough Catalina up. 
Jen likely gets mixed up into the shit talking because she's always trying to fit in with the crowd and act like she's a street girl and that she's grown. Eventually, Eva lays down on the couch and Jen goes to bed. A while later, the guys return. Eva tries to get them to leave and they tell her that they have a ride coming. They then go back into the bedroom with Jen and everyone falls asleep. Then, the next morning at 7.44 a.m., Eva gets a text from Frank, if that's his real name. That's just the name that Jennifer gave police. We don't know if that's actually true or not, or if the whole story is true, of course. But while we're on the subject of names, I think that the name Tommy, the guy with no last name, the guy from work, I think that name's made up, but I don't think that page is made up. In fact, we know it's not, because she showed her pager to the police. But for whatever reason, when Eva gets the text, she goes outside. Maybe the text was a code, or possibly she went to use a phone. We really don't know. Remember, no one has eyes on Eva until Jennifer wakes up an hour later. Eva could have walked to the corner store to use the payphone during that time, the same phone that Jen's mom usually used. For whatever reason, Eva goes outside after receiving the text. She could have even been just smoking a cigarette. But this is when Zara Goza Garza drives by and sees her standing on the steps. Now, this is pure speculation, but I think that Eva found a phone somewhere around 8 o'clock and called Frank. I think he told her that he was coming by to rough Catalina, probably something they had discussed before. And maybe even during that conversation, Eva tells him that she doesn't actually want to do it. Who knows? I mean, it's possible that phone call didn't even happen. This part is just speculation. But we do know that she got a page. I think we have good evidence that she was outside. I think it's very possible that she called that number back. But either way, Eva's outside at 745 when Zaragoza drives by. And then she goes back inside and lays back down on the couch. At 8.45, Jen leaves to make her phone call. A little bit after Jen leaves, the man we're calling Frank shows up at Eva's door. The two of them then go downstairs to carry out their plan. I want to make sure to point out here that even in my mind, there are a few different scenarios that fit into these next few minutes. I'm presenting one potential set of circumstances, but there's plenty of room for error here. The part that I'm very confident in is that Eva and at least one male were involved. It's possible that even if that's accurate, that maybe Frank brought one or two guys with him. With all of Eva's very calculated lies and changes in her stories and the opportunities that we've highlighted, not to mention the fact that she was the only person with a grudge against Catalina, in my opinion, there is no scenario where she's not directly involved in the murder. But unfortunately, when it comes down to pinpointing exactly how it happened, a lot depends on who and what June Sage actually saw, if anything. I just can't make sense of June's statement the way she saw it actually being a part of the murder. But her description leaves out the bike and Red Rock going up the stairs. Without having her exact words without Swainson's manipulation, there's just no way of knowing what she actually saw. So just know that a lot of these elements could get moved around based on what June saw, but since we don't know exactly what she saw, I'm just putting a pin in that. But this is how I think things may have gone down. Eva and Frank sneak up to the corner of the patio where it meets the building, out of the view of Catalina, who was inside. Catalina's in the kitchen, organizing her medications for the week like she does every Tuesday because it's her day off. Eva and Frank jump the fence, and Catalina hears them. 
She calls out to see who's there and moves towards the door. She's wearing her slippers. Catalina screams, which the boys upstairs hear, but they don't get up. In a panic, Catalina tries to quickly close the glass door. Frank pries the screen door outward and forces his way in, which is why the door is found half open. It was a beautiful morning, and I think Catalina had the door all the way open before the attack. Note here that in Eva's statement, she says that she noticed the door was all the way open, but it wasn't actually fully open after the attack when she reports to have seen it. It was only halfway. If she saw it open, it was open before the murder. Catalina quickly realizes that she's overpowered and abandons her plan to shut the door. She retreats towards the front door and loses a slipper right in front of the patio in the process and runs out of the other one a couple steps later. Frank is right behind her and Eva follows behind, pushing the screen door that is now dangling off the frame out of her way. Frank grabs Catalina to stop her from opening the door and Eva grabs a ceramic flower pot and smashes it over her head. A little trigger warning here for the next few seconds. I'm going to be describing a very graphic scene. So Catalina goes down and Frank pulls out a knife. He tries to slit her throat from behind, but Catalina is still fighting. He slices across her chest instead. She's in the fetal position on the floor and Frank is reaching around from behind her trying to stab her in the chest. But Catalina keeps deflecting the blade and grabbing his arms. I don't think Frank is a very big guy. He's not that strong, and he severely underestimated Catalina's strength, especially with the adrenaline pumping through her veins. He finally gets his hands free and pulls back. Catalina is still in the fetal position, protecting her vitals and her face. Frank then plunges the knife into her ribs through her side and her back. He keeps stabbing because she keeps moving. But with a major artery severed, her fight lasted only about 30 seconds, and she started to fade. Frank stands up and backs away, and Eva pushes the pot full of dirt over onto Catalina. As I've said before, my interpretation of the pot being thrown onto her was that it was a final fuck you from the killer. It's an indicator of personal cause, anger, a grudge. It's very clear from the silhouette pattern of the dirt on the floor that it was knocked over onto Catalina after she had landed in her final resting place and wasn't moving anymore. She didn't move an inch after the dirt landed on top of her. And I'm also fairly certain at this point that the pot and stand were already in the apartment. It's never made sense to me why the killer would bring them inside. But as I've been thinking about it even further, I realized that it really doesn't make sense for them to have carried in both the pot and the stand. One or the other, maybe, but not both. I think the stand and pot were already near the door. And the killer didn't hit Catalina with them or even throw them. They kicked or pushed the stand over, spilling the dirt all over her body. As the two were ready to take off, Eva grabs the keys and the wallet and they rush back out the patio. Eva's leading the way this time and Frank bumps the screen door the rest of the way off the frame on his way out. Then, as they're jumping the fence to run away, Jen walks around the corner and sees them. Like I told you towards the beginning of this episode, I'm personally convinced that something significant happened with Jen when she turned that corner. Her story falls apart in every version in that moment. We also have Eva saying that she saw Jen walk around the corner after the murder, and KD says he saw her walk up from that direction too, 
although he puts it happening in the middle of a completely nonsensical story, so it's hard to know if he actually saw her or not. But I believe that Jen was desperately trying to tell the truth when she told Alan that she would come clean during the interview. All he wrote in his report was that she told him that when she walked around the corner, she saw Eva and Frank jumping the fence coming out of the apartment. What he doesn't say is how long she spent trying to convince him. Remember, she spent seven hours with him that day. We get the impression that she just gave that story, he told her that he knows it's not true, and then she changed it again, because that's the way he wrote it in his report. But she could have spent an hour or more trying to convince him that that really is the truth, and he just refused to accept it. I think that's exactly what happened, and from that point, Jennifer did what most juveniles do in that situation. They submit and tell the detective whatever they think he wants to hear, hoping to end the nightmare and to go home. Back to the theory. Jen walks around the corner and sees Eva and Frank jump the fence. Frank takes off running towards the parking lot where he parked and he gets out of there. Jen runs up to Eva and asks her what's going on. Eva is panicked and she tries to make up a story that she heard Catalina screaming. Jen's not really buying it, but doesn't want Eva to think she doesn't believe her. Eva has the wallet and keys in her pocket, and she needs to get rid of them. She tells Jen to check on Catalina while she makes up an excuse to go back upstairs. Eva goes into her apartment and goes inside to stash the wallet and collect herself. And this is when Jen goes to Catalina's door and starts knocking, and Red Rock shows up. I think that's why she told him that Eva was sleeping. If Eva wasn't home it would be easy to just say that she wasn't there. But I think that Jen knew Eva was home because she had just went up the stairs, so she made up an excuse as to why Red Rock shouldn't bother her. And it's also why Red Rock never crossed paths with Eva. Because she hadn't gone to the office yet when he was there. She was still inside. When Eva got inside, Youngster and Katie came out of the bedroom. She was busted and couldn't stash the keys or wallet right then. They ask what's going on and she tells them something's wrong with the lady downstairs. Maybe that she heard screams and she was going to go check it out. She's about to open the door and head back outside when she hears Jen talking to someone through the door. She stalls and Youngster looks out the window and sees Red Rock and Housen. And as soon as they leave, Eva goes back outside and tells the guys to stay inside. She tells Jen that she's going to go get help. And here she reiterates to Jen that she needs to say that she heard screaming and that that's why they were concerned. I don't think that Eva realized that Jen saw her jumping back over the fence. So Jen stands around for a minute after Eva leaves and decides to jump the fence to see what happened. She stops at the door and calls out to Catalina asking if she's okay. No answer. She considers going in, but she decides not to. She's afraid. So she jumps back over the fence, and a moment later, Eva and Pam return. As soon as they return, Eva, who already knows what they're going to find, heads straight back up to her apartment. But Jen is more curious because she doesn't know what's happened yet. She sticks around and even follows Pam in once Keith opens the door. That's when she sees Catalina's body and the bloody pottery that she thinks is orange. She doesn't get very far in, and she doesn't actually touch a purse. Pam shoes her away. Jen's upset, and she tells them that they need to cover her up before she leaves the apartment. When Jen comes out of the apartment, she's still upset. Even though Eva is telling her that she was just trying to help, 
Jen's not an idiot. She knows what happened. And that's why she doesn't go up into the apartment with Eva. She doesn't want to be a snitch, and she doesn't want to lose the momentum she felt that she was gaining in becoming an independent adult and in with the, quote, cool crowd at that point. She doesn't know what to do, so she just walks away to clear her head. Meanwhile, Eva is in the apartment convincing Katie and Youngster that they need to say that they heard screaming. They agree to help her and go outside and start yelling that everyone should have heard the lady screaming. And now, Eva finally has a few minutes to herself. She checks the wallet for cash and realizes there's none in there, and then stashes both the wallet and the keys behind the fridge. So here's what I think happened. It has never made sense to me that the keys and wallet were taken by two different people. Neither had any value. As I said before, I agree with Jim. Catalina's killer was never going to steal the car. The wallet and the keys were taken as staging. So you have three items that left the apartment that we know of. The knife that was used to stab Catalina, the wallet, and the keys. Frank left with the knife. I don't think that he had the keys. I think that they were both tossed behind the refrigerator coils. Remember, Madrano wasn't looking for anything behind the fridge. He was just moving it to paint and just happened to see the wallet. I think that the keys were there all along. Probably more towards the center and maybe lower in the coils, probably hidden by the usual dust that accumulates on those coils. He just never saw them. And shockingly, no one from the police department ever went back to the unit and looked for them. I'm sure that fridge has since been replaced. But those keys could very likely be at the bottom of a landfill somewhere, still stuck in those coils. Or they could have been discovered years later by new staff that didn't put two and two together. It's just a theory, but I really think that the keys were behind that fridge the whole time. And no one ever bothered to look for them. Which tells you that whoever left them there and didn't retrieve them wasn't wrong. It really was a good long-term hiding spot. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After Eva stashes the wallet, she steps outside and sits on the steps. She does her best to seem upset, crying out, why would anyone want to hurt that old lady? Forgetting that she's not supposed to know yet that somebody had hurt Catalina. Then Jen finally collects herself and walks back to the scene. She climbs the steps and she sits down next to Eva. At some point, the two of them go into Eva's apartment together. Eva tells Jen that some dangerous people killed Catalina and that they need to get their story straight or they're going to be in danger. This is where Eva hatches the fake boy scenario. Then, in Eva's first statement, she makes sure to tell Swainson that she thinks she saw Jen walking up as she was about to run for help. She needs Jen for an alibi, and that's why in the first version, she puts her on the scene. The plan was simple. She tells Jen to say something that's going to give her an alibi, and then she tells Swainson, you should probably talk to Jen because I saw her walking up during this time. 
From this point forward, Jen was a sitting duck. Swainson and Allen put Eva in the position of driving the narrative, and I still believe there's a reason that she was protected through all of this. I just don't know why. Jen, on the other hand, was left alone, impressionable and suggestible. And she happened to be at a point in her life when she was desperately trying to be a grown-up. She made a shitty decision to protect someone who she thought was her friend. And in my opinion, that's where her culpability comes in. I don't believe that Jen was ever in that apartment before or during the murder. And I also don't believe that she was a lookout. But I do believe that she knows who killed Catalina. I think she's always known that Eva was directly involved. I think she tried to protect her, and it cost her her life. The best counter-argument to this theory is, why wouldn't Jen flip on Eva, especially now? I think this situation is far more complicated than we might imagine. If I'm right, then Jen didn't commit any crime here, other than lying to the police at first. I think that she did try to tell the truth. When she realized that Eva had set her up, Jen decided to do the right thing and just tell the truth. And that's where her culpability shifts to Detective Allen's, in my opinion. He refused to accept the truth. For some reason, he was insistent on protecting Eva. Even though, truly, all signs were pointing towards Eva. And he knew it. We see his ability to pick up on changing stories because it's written in his report in regards to Jen. He had talked to Alan. He had seen the reports. He had read Eva's story. He knew that she had changed her story. He knew that she had lied about an alibi and that her story didn't match anyone else's. But yet he was determined to put the blame on Jennifer. To take the easy way out and manipulate and coerce her into a confession. Why has Jen never flipped on Eva? I think the answer is simple. When she tried to tell the truth, the police refused to accept it and gaslit her into thinking that they somehow knew that what she saw happen didn't happen. And then she gets arrested and her mom comes to see her. And very similar to what happened at Eights, I think that Jen was more worried about disappointing her mom at that point than anything else. I don't think that she really understood the gravity of her situation. Remember, when Jackie went to see her the next day, Jen thought that she had come to take her home. She didn't know she was going to spend the rest of her life in jail. And she did what teenagers often do. She lied to her mom. She didn't want to say that the woman she had been staying with had told her the night before that she was going to beat up an old lady. She didn't want to say that she saw her friend coming out of the apartment and that she lied to the police to protect a murderer. So she just said, I don't know what happened. I don't know anything. And she stuck to that story for so long that now it's become her truth. Admitting now that she's known all along that Eva was directly involved would also mean she'd be admitting to her mom that she's been lying to her for all these years. Her family, friends, her supporters. And I know that's probably not a popular opinion from either side of the case. And I could absolutely be 100% wrong about all of this. But I honestly really don't think so. I know that Jen's family listens to the show, and I'm sure that's not what you wanted to hear from me as I bring the season to an end. I'm sorry about that. But I told you from the very beginning that I will always report the truth as I see it. 
And unless there's something that I'm missing, something maybe Jen can explain, I just don't see any scenario where Jennifer doesn't know who killed Catalina. If you're open to taking one piece of advice from me, it would be this. Tell Jennifer that it's okay to tell the truth. That you understand why she stuck to the story for so many years. And that it's okay now to let it go. Because until she can tell you what really happened that morning, no one is ever going to be able to solve this case. This really is a sad day for me. I can't even really express how disappointed I am that we have to walk away from this case with no resolution in sight. I desperately wish that we could do more. But as things stand, this is the end of the road. What I've presented to you today is a very detailed theory of how this crime could have went down. And to be honest, it's one of a dozen scenarios that I think are plausible. Anyone who's being honest with themselves has to admit that this case is full of wiggle room, to say the least. Any details have to involve some amount of speculation. But if I zoom out a bit, I can leave you with a very basic theory that I'm very confident in. I strongly believe that Eva was directly involved in Catalina's murder. I think that she either participated in the attack, or at the very least, she knows exactly who did it. And I believe just as strongly that Jennifer was not involved at all. Her only mistake was trusting and trying to cover for Eva. Eva was the driving force behind all of the lies and changing stories that we see riddled throughout this file. I believe that she is the locked door that leads to the truth and that Jennifer Jeffley holds the key. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. 
And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.